Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Entrepreneurs are racing to displace petroleum with new generation of fuels that harness energy from a variety of non-fossil sources, including sugar, algae, and even waste from farms and trash dumps. Some of these biofuel companies aim to use inputs that don't rely on food crops such as corn, sidestepping the food versus fuel controversy. They're also developing gasoline substitutes that can be poured into car tanks and run through existing pipelines and refineries without any modification. The ability of these so-called drop-in fuels to use existing infrastructure has attracted attention from large oil companies as well as investors. Several of these companies have gone public in the past 18 months. Can these biofuels compete with gasoline on price and performance? Is their promise real or hyped? I'm Greg Dalton, and for the next hour, we'll discuss biofuels with our live audience at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, and three CEOs trying to break oil's monopoly on liquid transportation fuels. Ed Denine is CEO of LS9. Alan Shaw is CEO of Cadexis, and Jonathan Wilson is CEO of Solozyme. Please welcome them to Climate One. Um, Jonathan, let's begin with you. Let's establish the terms、uh, for our audience here. You know, what is a drop-in fuel in, in your in your view? Well, a, a drop-in fuel, from my perspective, is a fuel that fits directly into the existing infrastructure without modification. It's always, in my、uh, experience, discussed in in light of an alternative fuel. If it's petroleum-based, it is already drop-in since that's the standard. But a drop-in fuel is a fuel that can go into the infrastructure from、uh, potentially refining, distribution, infrastructure, and,、uh, and and utilization in vehicles without any、uh, modifications. And they can replace both diesel as well as aviation fuel, which some other fuels can't. Would that be included as well? Well, I mean, literally anything. You can be talking about replacing bunker fuel, marine fuel, diesel fuel, aviation fuel, even gasoline. So it really can be a very, very broad spectrum. It has more to do with both the specific technologies. Applications to deliver solutions. For instance, some of the alcohol-based fuels wouldn't work in a diesel, whereas、um, uh, oil-based fuels can be used in just about everything. 
Alan Shaw, tell us, how big is the market today? How much of these fuels are being made, actually produced today in the marketplace? Or is this still very early days in terms of something that's promised uh, down the road? It's early days. Uh, you know, we're, talk, we're talking about one of the, uh, one of the biggest uh, industrial initiatives uh, of all time. This is not a small undertaking, but, but of course the prize is huge. One of the principal drivers of, uh, of carbon emissions is, is in the transportation sector. Uh, transportation, if we look at the internal combustion engine, is one of is a fairly unique thing. It's 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 a great great uh, uh, industrial re- revol- uh, result. Uh, it 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 uses liquid fuel, not solid fuel, and that's very very clever. And there are many there, you know that is clever in itself. Uh, that means that solar, wind, hydro, and nuclear uh, will not help you drive the internal combustion engine. Uh, if you think about the lifetime of a of a vehicle. Uh, it's uh, 20 plus years. Uh, we in the Western world, developed Western world, might, might change our car every three, four, five. In my case, I'm still driving a car that's six years old. Uh, but you know those cars have a long life ahead of them and they go to other parts of the world. So the tail of the current infrastructure is a good 40, 50 plus years out. I'm not a huge advocate of the electric car uh, 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 innovation. I, I think it's a niche play, but you'll not replace mass transportation, internal combustion engines in our lifetime, not at mass scale. We're talking millions and millions of cars, two billion cars within 10 years from the current one billion. So this is a major market that is expanding rapidly and growing in the developing world. And it's, it, it, what drives it is a liquid transportation fuel. We need an alternative for that. We're still in the very early days, and that's because the technology is not ready to be deployed at scale. Scale being the key word here. Tremendous capital requirements. Technology will help drive that down. But no, it's very early days, but we're making significant progress. Ed Deneen, when do you think that it will get to scale? What's the time frame here? Are we talking years, decades? Obviously, oil has a century head start, at least. Yeah, give us a sense of your time frame. I think it's years, at least in terms of the initial scale plants. People already are producing biofuels. First-generation ethanol is from agricultural sources, so there's a lot of gasoline in this country. 10% or so has been replaced by ethanol. Brazil has done that. So we've seen examples of bio-based fuels uh, that have gone to scale. And I think for the type of technologies that we're practicing, I think in three years you'll start to see those plants uh, be established. Uh, and once the initial plants get established and you learn the technology, I think the acceleration will pick up. And what's the, the, the impediment to scale? Is it the technology? Is it the capital? Is it that the demand's not there yet? What, what's, uh, what are the hurdles that have to get, these companies have to get over? Some of it may be technology, but I think all of us recognize the need to move our technology up in scale. And I think that's just a process we'll go through and we'll get there. Uh, I think the, the bigger issue is the capital intensity of these plants. I think uh, a number of our processes are more efficient, but it's still capital intense, particularly when you're talking about fuels where the scale is so large. So I think that's an impediment. Uh, but the other issue is people are always going to look at the level of crude oil. So cost is important 
sustainability is nice and renewable is nice, but you have to be competitive with conventional fuels. So if we see a world of $150 crude, I think that's going to accelerate the pace of this technology uh, taking hold. Alan Shaw, you want to? Yeah, well, let me put that capital into perspective because uh, I completely uh, agree with uh, Ed. Uh, if if we try and build an alternative uh, transportation fuel industry uh, based on uh, non-oil, I mean, we talk we talk openly about the sugar economy. I mean, I'm a big fan of the sugar economy. All of us on, on this panel, we understand what we mean by that. But sugar as sugar, whether it's from corn or sugar cane, that as a feedstock will not support a sustainable uh, new transportation, you know, a new fuel sector because you're competing head-on with the food industry and I don't believe that there's going to be enough sugar for sugar to produce fuel and chemicals when, you know, there, there, there is a real demand. What we're really talking about is the release of cheap sugars from biomass and, and, and really, to be sustainable, this industry must back integrate to biomass, of which there is substantial amounts around the world. Two-thirds of sugarcane currently today is underutilized carbon. It's biomass. And so there's no shortage of biomass, uh, and that doesn't compete with the food chain. But here's the problem. The technology to convert that biomass into sugars which can be fermented into the products any one of our companies can produce today using fermentation technology is uh, expensive to get largely because of the capital. And that needs requires a technology that can uh, get you that. So 100 million gallon uh, cellulosic ethanol facility, if you built it today, could cost about a billion dollars. That means the capital is $10 per gallon of gas. Well, gas sells at $3. So the payback there looks horrendous. No one's going to build one. Guess what? They haven't. That's why it's not being built, because the technology is still not ready for prime time at scale. Now, there are many companies around the world trying to drive down that cost. And I think capital is, for me, the biggest inhibitor to uh, do developing this industry at scale. There will always be niche players, but if you're talking about deploying it at scale, uh, capital costs have got to come right down from, from where they are. And, and, and that will take a very clever technology and, and time. Jonathan Wilson, you want to jump in here? On cost of capital, I also want to get on the sugar point there. Whether sugar. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things. You know, I, I uh, uh, have a, an enormous amount of respect for my uh, fellow panelists, and this is an area where uh, I have a, a little bit of a different perspective. And, and I guess I can, I can start with the beginning, which is that I think that the, the challenges we face as a, as a planet with respect to renewable energy are uh, the requirements for renewable energy, I should say, are... Uh, challenges are so large that, you know, the, the uh, fairly famous comment is that we really require silver buckshot, and there is no silver bullet. We need lots of solutions. And, you know, one thing I can tell you from our perspective is um, I, I have a slightly different perspective on electrification for personal transportation. Um, I actually believe that electrification for personal transportation is very, very worthy goal, and for, for, for you know, 
consumer-sized vehicles going back and forth 10 or 15 miles in an area where you can get green electrons. It's a very efficient way. And if you look at what SolarZone is really focused on, we make oils. You can convert those oils into anything, um, but we've focused on converting them into diesel and jet and not into gasoline because we think that there are more efficient uh, technology solutions coming down the road, notwithstanding the fact that I do agree that the infrastructure scale for electrification will take a while. I think that as as an industry where we're where we're doing liquid transportation fuel replacements focusing on the things where you really can't get to them in any other really efficient way and we provide the best and most efficient solution is the best way to use the technology the the i guess the, the second point i would make uh, relates more to the sugars and, and i think what i would say there is We've spent years now developing a platform that uses standard industrial fermentation, which is the same platform as um, my, my colleagues up on the panel here. And we've demonstrated that we can use a very wide variety of different biomass-derived sugars from switchgrass and miscanthus to the stover from, uh, from, from corn to the bagasse from sugarcane, even to municipal green waste. And, and I, I think I'm not alone here in having demonstrated that. Uh, however, the one thing where, I'm, where, where I do differ a little bit is I do believe that there are tremendous opportunities agriculturally even today for expansion for things like sugarcane without the environmental degradation that, that, that people often discuss. And uh, it's probably not a, a viable topic for today because it would really take quite a while. And I agree that Feeding the planet is a number one priority. However, I think the food versus fuel discussion is not as intellectually honest as I would like to see it ultimately. And, and, and this is kind of a, a broader comment. Um, in, in most of the world, not in the U.S., where, where, where corn is our, our lead crop, but in many parts of the world, like Asia, they actually have to cook their staple crops like rice to eat them. And in Africa, they have to cook cassava to eat it. Otherwise, it can actually kill them. And that cooking requires fuel. And moreover, um, we have to think about what's the right way to use, uh, what's the right kind of food to produce from an efficiency standpoint anyway. You know, a kilo of beef is like driving 100 plus miles. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we can, I just think that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff wrapped up in the food versus fuel. I also believe that agriculture gets better and better every year and there are really tremendous opportunities with what's out there today. Although, for instance, Alan has wonderful technology to take some of these kinds of, of biomass and break them down into sugars that Solozyme and LS9 can use. And we're very eager for that to happen and believe that that will really expand the available pool. Are you saying that the food versus fuel uh, dichotomy is overblown? That, 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 I would that never say overblown. That's not the word I would use at all. I would say it's dramatically oversimplified. Okay. And it, what you really want to do is you want to look at overall sustainability. And overall sustainability means, you know, looking at how we get calories in to feed people. And, for instance, you know, using the amount of corn that we use to make beef is a decision. It isn't the most efficient way to feed people. I'm not going to argue one way or another. I'm just going to say there's a lot of elements to the discussion, to the fact that you actually have to cook rice and you have to cook cassava, and that requires fuel. So it's food and fuel, not food versus fuel, which is the way a lot of people like to think about this discussion. Denine, let's get you in here on the food versus fuel and whether sugar is is the uh, you know the sugars of uh, an issue here, whether it ought to be from cane sugar or, or sugars indirectly from other biomass sources. 
Well, I, I think I'm, I'm kind of with Jonathan on this. I, I believe there's going to be a role for both traditional agricultural sources. If you look at a place like Brazil, largest sugarcane producer in the world today, maybe 35 40% of the world's production, without exaggeration, through new technology, through use of land that is not in food use, is not Amazon forests, uh, they can easily go up by a factor of 10. A factor of 10. Now, this is the largest producer in the world. I'm also of the view that the innovation that companies like Monsanto, Syngenta, these leaders in agricultural technology, are being greatly spurred and enhanced by our industry. I don't think some of these innovations would be taking place just to make more food crops, frankly. So I believe in the long run the presence of this industry is actually going to increase the amount of food supply because of the amount of innovation we're sparing. Uh, can I just make a, 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 a comment on sure, that? Sure, Alan Shaw. I, I feel uh, our largest single shareholder is a company called Hyacin, which is the largest sugar producer in Brazil. So I feel I can speak with some authority on this. And, and the, 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 there, there is a mis- somewhat misunderstanding about the, the, the opportunity, the sugar opportunity in Brazil. Uh, Ed's absolutely right that there is no shortage of land and no shortage of water. But Hyacin themselves, in their presentations to analysts, uh, in reaction to the government's uh, statements that Brazil must double its ethanol capacity in the next five to ten years, which is just to satisfy internal demand. So let's put this into perspective. Brazil needs to double its ethanol production capacity in the next five to ten years to satisfy internal demand. Brazil, is, for the first time ever, is importing ethanol from the United States. Let me tell you, that's supposed to be the other way around. Right? So there's something wrong here. They've had some serious feelings in crops. But the real pressure on Brazil is not, is not the, the lack of land. It's infrastructure. So Hyacinth slides, if you ask them how are they going to double capacity, they'll tell you the only way that they can do it in that time frame is deployment of second-generation technology. They do not talk about planting more crops. And the reason for that is you can plant as many fields as you like, but there isn't the money to build the roads, to build the infrastructure. I mean, the sugar, sugar industry in Brazil is one of the most heavily indebted industries you'll find in Brazil. Most of the sugar producers are up to their eyes in debt. And the real prize for Hyacin, which was a JV between Royal Dutch Shell and Corsan, Brazil's number one, was a cash injection of about $2 billion. And that gave them a significant leverage and advantage over their competition. Because there's not a lot of cash in that industry. So... The truth is the bagasse is already there. There are bagasse mountains from the current production. And converting that into more sugar is absolutely a number one priority. And they'll do that over planting more fields any time. Because planting fields just isn't as easy as planting fields. So uh, it's much more complicated, this issue. Than Jonathan, uh, uh, I want to say that uh, Alan Shaw is uh, CEO of Codexis. Other guests today at the Climate One of the Commonwealth Club are Jonathan Wolfson, CEO of Solazyme, and Ed Deneen, CEO of LS9, a biofuel company. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Jonathan Wolfson, you want to jump in here? Well, I, you know, Alan, Alan and I... 
don't completely share the same perspective on this. I mean, you know, as a practical matter, Brazil is is one place, but I can also say, you know, one of our investors is is Bungi, who's one of the largest agricultural companies in the world and one of the top three or four sugarcane producers in Brazil. And they have a different perspective and uh, uh, believe that there's a lot of available land for planting of cane. But 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 I think. You know, we, we can kind of separate ourselves from this discussion a little bit with Brazil and, and move it up to the world level because I think that that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about how practical is providing fuels to you know, alternative fuels to the planet to help kind of solve some of our problems and is it going to create others. And, you know, my response to that is everything needs to be done thoughtfully. What we really want to see what we really want to see is we want to see a really stable system of ratings of sustainability of different kinds of feedstock. What, what, what we bring is we bring a very, very powerful conversion technology that can take sugars and turn them into oils, and we can make oils for food. We have a pretty large joint venture with a, a French starch company, which is one of the top five starch companies in the world, a company called Roquette, to make oils from sugar for, for food, and uh, uh, but we also are working with Chevron and Echo Patrol and fuels, and and uh, my colleagues up on stage have have other partners. The the practical point I'm trying to make is that there is an awful lot of biomass that can be sustainably produced. The issue is what can be sustainably produced. We need a, we need kind of a stable system to honestly rate sustainability from a water perspective, from a carbon emissions perspective, and those kinds of biomass, once we have that laid out, will open the door to the cap. Part, part of the capital question is there's uncertainty right now. So, you know, what, 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 what are one of the reasons I look at and think to myself, okay, what are some of the issues that could get in the way of commercialization moving forward? Well, we have partners that are very interested in something called the, the Renewable Fuel Standard, RFS2. And one of the things that could get in the way of commercialization on the timelines we all like is an overturning of RFS2. Because it's quantitative uh, uh, mandates for specific types of fuels and specific quantities. That's right. And, and this is important. And by the way, this is a, a role that governments have played in industries when you have very large, powerful incumbents that have been around, in this case, for over 100 years. And this is, this is something that, that matters. We already have good policy in place, but the uncertainty about whether that policy will continue uh, creates some challenges with respect to capital. Flows. In this particular case, there's a big mandate for corn ethanol that's in there, right? Yeah, and, and, and let me be clear. I'm not endorsing that particular part of it. Um, Do you want it to be undone, the corn mandate? Because, I mean, con when corn was in fashion, Congress said, okay, we got to make a bunch of corn ethanol. And now we realize corn has some, some side effects, water, com competition with fuel, and some people want that corn mandate uh, back down. Uh, I think corn ethanol has served a very good purpose as a first-generation uh, fuel that demonstrates. I mean, if I was to tell you and just walked into this room and I, and I was to say, okay, would you, could you conceive of a world where you take a big stainless steel tank, you put a microbe in it, and you feed that microbe biomass-derived sugars, and you can produce tens of billions of gallons of fuels that can fit directly into our infrastructure? You would normally think I was nuts until I told you that that's ethanol. And so the fact that ethanol has kind of paved the way for, for better and more sustainable 
next generation fuels is something that I'm actually very appreciative of. And, you know, but it's time has come or past time to move on. I, 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 yes, I believe so. I do. It doesn't mean we should get a, we should necessarily get rid of it. I mean, you have lots of capital out there, and it serves a purpose. It's an oxygenate. It's something that we need. We want to replace MTBE, which is bad for groundwater and other things like that. Ethanol has a place, but its place shouldn't be – corn ethanol has a place, but its place shouldn't be an expanding place. That's my perspective. Let's talk about price and, and try to get some – you know, a lot of this uh, comes down to can these new biofuels compete against the incumbent, which is petroleum – and uh, your co-founder of Solazyme, Harrison Dillon, said uh, in August of 2010, quote, oil that costs $1,000 per gallon to make in a pond will cost about $1.50 to $2 per gallon in the next year or so using fermentation tanks. Are you there yet? From a productivity standpoint, the answer is yes. The part of the question that requires some clarification is it depends on the cost of the input sugars. And those have been fluctuating wildly. So what we really look at now, instead of looking at the cost of production, is we look at the difference between the cost of production and the selling price. We look at the margin. Because what's happened is you've seen fluctuation on both production cost and value of the oils. And what we really care about is the margin. And so from a pr productivity standpoint, to get to those kinds of numbers in general, yes, we have reached those kinds of productivities. And Ellen Shaw, where are you price-wise? You know, where's your target, or where are you now in terms of being able to deliver a, uh, a fuel that can compete with gasoline or diesel? Well, uh, our our principal uh, contribution to this industry will not be producing a biodiesel uh, uh, in, in, in the short term, uh, because I fundamentally don't believe that biodiesel is viable as a product from what I call sugar, first-generation sugar. The, 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 the numbers just don't add up for me. My job is to release cheap sugar to the industry, as Jonathan said earlier, and Cadexis could actually be positioned very nicely as an enabler to this entire sector. My principal op uh, target is to reduce all that biomass that two-thirds of the current production in Brazil into fermentable sugars because what Jonathan rightly pointed out is that the key driver of economics here is feedstock cost. And guess what? It is with every other industry, so why should this be any different? So feedstock will make or break uh, every, every company in this sector. And if you've got diesel selling at uh, $1,100, $1,200 a tonne, and sugar input there is four, five, whatever. And remember, sugar is expensive if it's high quality, and it's cheap if it's low quality. But low quality means impurities, and they kill the very technologies that we've got. Fermentation microbes don't like impurities. With maximum yields being 30, 35%, ethanol's only 65% theoretical yield, you're going to have to have a real, real close look at the cost of your feedstock if you're going to make any money in this industry. And so, you know, I'm an industrialist, right? So I speak as an industrialist. I'm not a VC by any stretch. So there's no hype with me. You know, this is about nuts and bolts. It's, it's going to come down to basic economics. And the feedstock will drive profitability or will kill us. And therefore, my job is to try and get the feedstock as low as possible. And the bottom line is, second-generation cellulosic sugars are about a tenth in terms of contribution to what I call first-generation sugars, whether it's corn, starch, or sugar. That factor of a tenth 
will enable this industry. So that's my contribution. And these guys, hopefully then, will make lots of money and we'll all be happy. But you also believe there's a lot of... Um uh, games played with price forecasts, you call them lies in, in this industry. Well, I wouldn't say that sitting here. Uh, I think there's a lot of hype. Uh, I think there's been too much hype. Uh, you know, I, I, speak, I speak for the industry as much as I do for Cadexis. I've been on the, at the board of Bio for the best part of 10 years. I, I, I see myself as a, as a, as a, a vocal, a vocal a voice for the bio transformation, the, the, the sugar economy. I've been working in this area for 20 years. Uh, I fundamentally believe that biology is the technology enabler of the 21st century, and the last century was the age of chemistry. So we're all in the right place doing the right thing. Uh, too much hype, largely being driven around a VC-pumped-up bubble, uh, has not helped this sector. What we don't need is high-profile failures at a time when we're trying to get traction. That doesn't help the industry. Uh, what we don't need is uh, a lot of government money going into companies to build plants for underdeveloped technology. And there's been a number of those in this sector. That doesn't help. You know, if we're all pragmatic and we take a deep breath and we all get the technology right and then build the plants for the technology, not the other way around, then eventually we will create something very special here. But uh, hype, hype uh, serves a purpose for certain individuals. For me, it's just getting in the way. Alan Shaw is CEO of Cadexis, a biofuel company, our guest here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, along with Jonathan Wilson and Ed Deneen. Uh You mentioned government funding. Uh, let's talk about the role of government funding in this. Do you think that the government ought to... Uh, fund uh, research through ARPA-E, that's, that's the appropriate place, or that they ought actually try to back winners and accelerate market adoption and get companies from that uh, demonstration phase across that valley of death to, uh, to scale. Ed, Deneen, what's your thought on where the government should be placing its bets? I, I think in an area like fuels, there's a role for the government to encourage research, uh, potentially to help facilitate issues around the capital side of it. Uh, I think in the chemical space, uh, there isn't really a role like that. I think you just have to compete uh, with traditional means uh, by virtue of your technology. But even in fuels, uh, there's only there's acceleration that can take place and initial support. But I think ultimately in both those industries, the fuels and chemical industries, we have to be able to stand on our own two feet. We need the feedstock to compete. Uh, we have to do what we do on the technology side to compete. And we have to find ways to manage this capital intensity, uh, making, making our technologies less capital intense, making the processes more efficient. So I, I think there's a role for government to spur things along initially, but at some point uh, we've got to sink or swim. And your company, LS9, received $9 million this year from the Department of Energy. Is that correct? We did. It with was a, a partner company. With a partner company who is also in this cellulosic uh, sugars, taking wood chips and, and things of that nature to produce sugars and then show how it integrates with our technology to make diesel, aviation fuels, chemicals. So that's a good use of government company, good government money probably. Well, right? it's, it's this use of trying to encourage uh, these technologies in the beginning. Okay. Um, 
Alan Shaw, uh, you mentioned the government should, shouldn't put money at unproven technologies, yet Codexis has received money for carbon capture and sequestration, which a lot of people think has is, is been uh, a big hole that the government's put a lot of money down into. Well, let me be clear, that's an RPE grant, and there's a very big difference between RPE and government loan programs to build uh, uh, two, $300 million facilities to produce product with technology that doesn't work. Uh, I'm actually a very big fan of RPRI. I think the government, uh, this is one of the best uses of taxpayers' money. RPRI is specifically focused at developing uh, and accelerating technology. Uh, that's what RPRI about is out. And I think the director there, Arun, uh, who's, uh, who, who I think has done a tremendous job uh, within DOE in his own area uh, just requires, I, I, I can't give him enough praise. But that's our pari. And the grants there are relatively small. Five million, couple of million. I don't know of a grant that's more than ten, ten-ish. Uh, no, I was making reference to hundreds of millions of dollars. Solyndra, you're talking well, about. Well, I wasn't others. actually. No, I'm thinking range fuels. Range fuels stands out as a huge embarrassment. Cylindra uh, Solar, I, I don't know anything about solar. Uh, Range Fuels is a company where the government sunk money in and, and, yeah. it, and it went and, and south. The, the plant was built far too early. Uh, the technology was significantly underdeveloped. Uh, I think there's a perception that if a company has a plant, it looks more real. And perhaps people do that because they hope someone will then buy it. Or it might have an IPO. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being cynical. But uh, I don't think people should rush to build production facility until the technology is truly developed. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I said to you earlier, a cellulosic facility to produce 100 million gallons, uh, the killer there is the capital. Right? You need to get that down to about $300 million, you know, one or two X in one year. That's the metric that matters. Well, why would someone build that plant if it's 3X, 4X? The, the technology will drive down the capital because the enzymes will be developed with the engineers from the people who will build the plant. In this case, it's Royal Dutch Shell. And that, that work takes three, four, five years, and you're working in tandem. The, the enzymes will help drive down the, the capital, the water usage. You can use, uh, you can, uh, use uh, lower-cost feedstocks by improving the enzymes. All of that has to be integrated with the people that will build the plant. How, how is it that small technology companies are building these plants even without industrial partners? The government should leave it to industry. That's what I think Ed was saying. Uh, industry knows what it's doing. And in fact, I think the oil companies know what they're doing. They've got some of the best engineers in the world working oil companies. So leave the plants to industry uh, R&D, I think the government actually does have a role to play. Let's talk about the oil companies. A lot of the large oil companies have placed bets on, on the table with various biofuel companies. Some of them have uh, made big dollar bets. Uh, ExxonMobil put $300 million into one company over 10 years, I think, in, in Southern California. Uh, some, of the, you, some of your companies have both uh, one or two oil companies uh, partnered with you. So, uh, Jonathan uh, Wilson, tell us, what's the strategy? Are the oil companies here just hedging their bets? Are they kind of, how are they looking at, because your core product competes with their core product. Uh, that's true. Um, and if you don't mind, I actually want to come back to, uh, I want to come back, uh, I sure. just want to get back to that uh, government discussion because I think the, it is a very, very loud 
uh, din right now in in Washington about specifically Solyndra, as you mentioned. And I, I think that there's one thing that people forget a lot, which is that the big integrated oil companies, and by the way, we have partners, big integrated oil companies like Chevron, who've invested in multiple private rounds and funded multiple joint development agreements, and as Alan said, have some of the best engineers in the world and are really committed to what we're doing. Notwithstanding that, I'll say big integrated oil companies have also had a 100 years to bury subsidies in all kinds of places, and therefore, one of the big challenges is people are talking about industry should stand up and, you know, this should all be dependent on uh, alternative uh, renewable fuels meeting parity with petroleum. But the truth is parity isn't parity because of all of these hidden subsidies. And that's one of my – that's one of the things I come back to when I look at it as a challenge. So, so the deck is stacked if, against you guys I, because – the answer is, I believe yes. I think Alan does not believe that. It doesn't agree with me. But I absolutely believe, to some extent, I don't know that I would put the deck is stacked against us, because there's a dramatic need for what we're doing also, and there's a pull for that. But I would say that parity is not parity. And that is a challenge. And, th- and, th- and if you think about really important industries in this country and things that we've exported to the world, things like the Internet or the semiconductor industry, these were stood up by the U.S. government. Literally, these industries were stood up by the U.S. government. People forget that. There was basic research. There was, in many cases, by the way, money that went to actually build plants, for instance, in the semiconductor world, also in the petrochemical world after World War II. And there is a... uh, They also bought down the price of a lot of things through uh, the military. And and, and look, but let's be clear. We're not in a time today where I think any of us should be building business cases that say the government is going to come in and save our bacon. You know, for, for, for Solazon, the vast majority of our financing is private. The vast, vast, vast majority of our financing is private. We have a couple of government programs. We have one with DOD. We have one with DOE. They're very helpful to us. But, you one know, one of your if, biggest customers is the military. Uh, one of our biggest customers is the military. The U.S. Navy. Yeah, is the U.S. Navy. That's right. Um, and that's important. We're making drop-in fuels for the Navy. But, but, you know, I think that People forget, you know, they look at Solyndra, which has really gotten a lot of press. And, and I believe that if the process through which the loan guarantees were made to Solyndra was not uh, a, a, a reasonable or fair process, that's a big issue, and that should be explored. But You're you can't, you cannot, you absolutely cannot create true, important innovation without taking risk and being willing to fail. Right? And Solyndra, again, I won't comment on the propriety of the process, but the basic idea that you're going to make a loan guarantee, which was less than 2% of the total loan guarantee pool, and that fails, I think that's a risk that we have to, as a society, be willing to take if we look forward and we say, look at what we're doing to our environment. You know, look at the number of additional people that are going to be residing on this planet. Look at the energy security issues. I mean, these problems are huge. And the neat part is that innovation can really go a long way to helping us solve them, but not if we're afraid of failure. 
Taxpayers and voters are, yeah, don't like, uh, but not, we've not had, the same as uh, Silicon Valley investors. We've had endless failures in the past with government investment. You just didn't hear about it when it was the first 10 ejector seats uh, for, 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 jet, for fighter jets that ended up costing X billions of dollars. You didn't hear about it because it was ejector seats. It wasn't fuel where everybody can think about what it costs on a per-gallon basis because they fill up their own car. Jonathan Wilson is CEO of Solazine. We're discussing biofuels at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our other guests are Ed Deneen, CEO of LS9, and Alan Shaw, CEO of Cadexis. Uh, let's get back to the big oil companies and how they're uh, investing in companies that are trying to uh, eat away at the monopoly of their, of their core product. Alan Shaw, what's, what's the game there? I think it's a very real game. Uh, in a way, they're probably threatened. I mean, that's the best way to get anyone to react is what's in it for me. They're not doing it because they're a charity case. I mean, with the number of cars set to uh, uh, increase, as I said, from 1 billion to 2 billion, there's going to become increasing pressure on what's known as light, sweet crude, which is the, uh, the rarest of the oils and the one that's necessary for transportation fuel. The oil companies, and Royal Dutch Shell is the la- largest distributor of biofuels in the world, which is our uh, de- development partner, they, they see increasing demand in China, Brazil, Russia, India, you know, the, the South Africa, the BRICS countries, and they would love to find a way to supplement supply of oil-based gasoline into that to soak up the demand and, and in, if, 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 if possible, use the oil as a feedstock for higher added value products. Remember, ethanol is a blend. So for every 10% of gasoline converted to ethanol, that's 10% more gasoline that you could sell. And of course, we're talking about the volume here literally doubling. Um, so I think they're doing it because it's real and, and they know they have to do something about it. But you're saying that they're doing it to, to satisfy expanding uh, demand because is it going to be cheaper to invest in these new technologies than go find oil deeper in the oceans or up in the Arctic, different places? Well, I think, I, I, you know, at the end of the day, the, these companies, and we're, we're all very fortunate to have them, uh, they can afford to place bets. Uh, so I think initially there was an element of hedging about this. I mean, Royal Dutch Shell will definitely want to drill more oil and will definitely want to uh, invest in biofuels. I mean, it's all part of a portfolio approach. I think they'll do all of these things. But their job, remember, is to be an energy supplier. And, 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 then, and, and, and they want to be around 20, 30, 40 years from now. E- energy demand on this planet is going to become a very serious issue, right, for all of us. Uh, so I'm glad the oil companies are being proactive and, and, and putting their money where their mouth is. I don't think it's greenwashing. I think that's a joke. It's not at all. It's very practical. They need to do something about it. And the good news is for everyone in this room, they've got the money. They've got the resources to do it. And I think they're one of the few sectors or few industry groups that can possibly find the capital to, 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 to make this a reality. I mean, it's huge, huge, uh, what, what's needed. So I'm, I'm very, we're very fortunate to have Royal Dutch Shell as a partner, and I believe that they're seriously committed to, to this space. Will they be able to make as much money off of biofuels as they do off of, uh, you know, the margins for crude are, are, are fantastic. They make a ton of money off that. Uh, will they support something if they don't think is, they can make as much money off of these new biofuels? 
Well, the, 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 the target for us is to produce a biofuel that's comparable to oil. No one's saying, Alan, you need to produce biofuels cheaper than oil. You just need to produce it at a comparable price. Uh, I haven't gone into the whys and wherefores of their margins. I focus very much on my own margins and my own shareholders, uh, of which they are uh, a significant one. But the, but the point is, uh, we need to be as good as oil, and, and, and then you will see uh, a, an industry adoption uh, of, of what are blends. I mean, I don't think you're talking about direct replacement. Uh, uh, you know, Europe uses, you know, Brazil uses more ethanol than the U.S. But either way, we're going to, we need to complement, and this is why the drop-in that, that Jonathan commented on, drop-in is critical because drop-in means you don't have to do any extra formulating or any extra hydro-treating. Uh, you know, the oil company wants a product that it can use today, and ethanol is currently used today. So I think this is a principal supplement for gasoline. Uh, and the industries behind it. Diesel, absolutely. If it's bio and it's dropping, they'll use it if it's competitive in terms of price. Why wouldn't they? Ed Deneen, the, the role of oil companies here? Well, I think they can play a big role. Frankly, I think in relative terms, uh, they've, they've really put pretty little in. Uh, you mentioned $300 million for Exxon over 10 years. That's nothing for ExxonMobil. Uh, so and they're, they're putting, they're, they're placing small bets relative to their some financial Some have placed bigger bets. I think you also can't paint them all with one brush because when I look at that industry, I can see examples of fairly large oil companies that are doing nothing. I can see some that are selectively placing bets here and there, and I can see some that are placing pretty big bets. ConocoPhillips is one that hasn't done much so far. So far, they would be one on the, on the end of the scale that hasn't done much uh, in terms of big investment. Uh, I think, relative to some of the, the others. And if you look at the risk appetite for oil companies, uh, they're used to risk. I mean, drilling for oil is a risky business. So they're not afraid of the risk. They're not they... afraid of the risk. I think they probably understand and can calculate that risk a little bit more. But I think there's plenty of room for them to step up further in this industry. And I think, I think they will, uh, because I think we will deliver the technology and it will be competitive and they're smart business people, and, and they will bring more dollars to the table when they see the opportunity. But I think uh, right now, I think they can do a lot more than they've been doing. They would say they don't see the return on capital. They can make more money putting you know, their capital somewhere else than into one of these companies. Jonathan? I'm not sure that that's true in all respects. I mean, I think I can take a very – Solazyme specific example here, but you know, we, it's not just, you know, Alan talked about the cost of the inputs, right? And, and that's a critical, critical, critical linchpin. What are these sugars going to cost to turn into fuels? Okay? And, you know, I mentioned briefly the fact that what really matters to us is the margins. And the other side of that equation is the output. And, you know, from a Solazyme-specific example, what we do is we, we can tailor oils. So one of the things that we can do is we can make very, you know, a barrel of oil, which, you know, WTI, I know, is hovering around 80 and Brent's over a little over 100, but a barrel of oil uh, at whatever that nominal number is, is really a mixture of a whole bunch of different compounds that averages out <laughs> to that number. But some of the things in that barrel are worth a whole lot more, 
And some of the things in that barrel, like the asphaltines that are used to pave roads, are worth a whole lot less. And so, you know, for a specific point, for us, we use our technology to make some of the most valuable cuts of that barrel. And it can be used to uplift other kinds of fuels. So uh, a heavy bunker fuel that has sulfur in it, you can uplift it to uh, a much lower sulfur diesel fuel that creates a lot of additional value by blending in an oil. And what I would argue is I think that margins, the, the oil companies think obsessively and correctly obsessively about margins. And, you know, a lot of people just think that these are, you know, this is just a barrel of oil. It isn't necessarily, in Solzheim's case, it's not. We're really tailoring the most valuable cuts, and that provides real value, even against the investments that can be made, um, you know, drilling anywhere. So I think that they're very, very, very uh, cognizant of uh, uh, the returns on their investments, and they're making bets where they also think that they can get enhanced returns. We are going to put a microphone out here for the audience questions. Uh, right here, I invite you to come. Uh, if you're on this side, if you can come around the back door there. My colleague, Jane Ann, is right there. Uh, will um, be the line. Uh, so please come up and let's have the audience questions. Um, I mentioned that a couple of uh, biofuel companies have gone public in the last year or, or two. Uh, since the, one of the IPOs, Solazyme, earlier this year, the stock's down about 50%. Codexus is down about the same amount during that period. Exxon and NASDAQ are down about 11%. So what's that saying about the way the market's viewing the prospect of these disruptors and innovators vis-a-vis the, uh, the incumbents and the market averages? Jonathan? Well, I, you know, I think if you look at the markets, while we're generating revenues, a lot of the when you look at you know big industrial processes a lot of the cash flow happens the day you turn those plants on and we have deals for some plants but we're doing work on a lot more and there have been times when markets are very tolerant of valuing future cash flows in a reasonable way and since we had uh, since the beginning of August that's really changed and it's not Solazyme or Codexis specific you look at what we call high beta stocks and stocks that are being based on future cash flows. And they're all collectively down massive percentages, much larger than uh, the, the NASDAQ or the Dow. And, and that's really what we're experiencing. It's much more in line with the kind of peer group of companies based on future cash flows than it is, um, um, you know, any one specific perspective that this is a bad area. Jonathan Wilson is CEO of Solazyme. Alan Shaw with Codexus. Do you have a similar? I, I, I completely support everything that Jonathan's just said, so I'll try and add something else. Uh, I've just come back from a week in New York on Wall Street, asking questions, finding out what people are concerned about. Uh, the only thing I can add is I think there's also a concern about capital requirements. So when a lot of these companies went public, uh, as I said, uh, there's, you know, everybody puts their best foot forward. I think there's been a very stark realization that feedstock prices are not quite where people hoped they would be, that development timelines might be pushed out a little bit. What that really translates to is, are you going to have to come back for more money? And any company in this sector that's got a high burn, high burn relative to its uh, balance sheet has, uh, could be, could be uh, in trouble in that there's a perception that, well, if they're going to come back, why would I buy now? Uh, I, I think I think burn rate is something that you have to look out for. Uh, I would. 
Let's have our first audience question, please. Thank you. Uh, we've seen uh, the airplane manufacturer Airbus uh, announce the construction of biofuel facilities. What is an airplane manufacturer doing in the construction of these facilities? Are they a competitor or a partner? And is this an example, Alan, of one of these cart-before-the-horse constructions of facilities before the technology is ready? Alan Shaw? I, w- I would say they're a partner. Uh, uh, they're an absolute partner. I mean, the, the, fu- the fuel, I believe, will be supplied by the oil companies. Uh, they've got the distribution, the channel. Uh, uh, we, we're, we're fundamentally technology providers, and we can play a niche role in supplying some products. But I don't think there's any company in the sector is ever going to really become an oil company. Uh, the infrastructure is just huge. So I think the oil companies will be the sub- providers of the fuel, and, and I, I think that's, I think it's quite, an, quite a nice initiative. It shows, you know, every region's different. Europe takes this thing much more seriously. They take carbon much more seriously. They put a price on carbon. It hasn't been very effective. Uh, unfortunately, we walked away from climate change legislation in this country at a critical time for the world. I think it, we may look back and it may be proven to have been a great error, but we'll need another 10 years of history before we can write our own history. Uh, I think there was an opportunity lost in this country when we put all our effort into health care. If we pushed the climate legislation and put a price on carbon, would have helped us a lot more than it has. Well, if I could just come in. Uh, when you look at companies like Boeing uh, or Procter & Gamble, for instance, who's a partner of ours in, in two programs, they all have very visible sustainability, renewability goals. But frankly, they can't get there unless their suppliers are providing them sustainable, renewable solutions. So in the case of Boeing, they need somebody providing renewable jet fuel, sustainable fuels. Uh, so I think that's why they're in the game. Mm-hmm. Same with Procter & Gamble. For them to make renewable materials in their shampoos, it's their suppliers who have to bring those forward. Let's have our next audience question, please. Yes, uh, I understand the motivation for drop-in fuels, but my question is we must be giving up something with the drop-in constraint. Uh, how much more efficient or cheaper or whatever could these fuels be, biofuels be, if they didn't have to be drop-in? We'd like to take that one. Well, I, I, don't, I don't see it as that big a constraint, uh, I think, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, perhaps if we didn't drive towards a, a tight ASTM spec, we could probably make it somewhat cheaper. Uh, but I think that relative cost compared to the things like feedstock, like CapEx, is, is relatively minor. And if you looked at the other side of that, if you had to actually change some of the infrastructure because you aren't making drop-in fuels, that would probably far outweigh the, the cost we have to go through to get there. Uh, I think ultimately the solution for some of that is uh, all of us make fuels, uh, but they're all slightly different. And I think the true biorefineries in the future are going to see com- combinations of our relative technologies uh, to sort of mimic more what, what a true refinery does today. Ed Deneen is CEO of the biofuel company LS9. Our other guests today, Climate One of the Commonwealth Club, are Alan Shaw, CEO of Cadexis, and Jonathan Wolfson, CEO of Solozyme. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have a next audience question, please. Hi, I'm a stockholder in Solozyme. I want to thank you for Solozyme. And I want to thank some of the VCs who are here in the audience who made that possible, perhaps with their hype, but mostly with their due diligence. Um, I want to talk about the price of carbon. 
you raise that, and uh, we talked about the price of the fuels, the fuel stock, and so on, and how this is not competitive with, with petroleum-based products. I would say that it's actually a question of who's going to pay it, because with petroleum-based products that we're so dependent upon, it seems as though the price is going to be paid by our grandchildren uh, for the cleanup, because we've essentially created a super fund site in our air and water. They're going to have to pay for that. We're not paying for it now. So what, is, what kind of price on carbon could we put that accurately reflects what the actual cost is? I'd like to tackle that. I mean, price on carbon would help all of your companies, right? Relatively. It would help innovation. Alan Shaw? Uh, I, I, see, I see much more about how it would help innovation. Uh, ultimately, the person that will pay for it will be the consumer. I mean, ultimately, the consumer ends up paying for everything, I think, within a certain, you know, if we want to generalize a little bit. Uh, oil companies uh, have a responsibility, and uh, but, but even, uh, you know, in, in Europe, uh, airlines are now having to pass on a huge burden uh, because for, for the first, I think British Airways next year starts to pay a lot more for, in, 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 in almost like a fine for, for its, for its uh, carbon emissions. So uh, uh, I don't know what the winning system is. I wouldn't begin to go there. I think ultimately it has to be paid for. But by, sti- by putting a price on carbon, the prize is that it will stimulate investment in innovation and we will create an industry. If there isn't an economic driver, if there isn't a market, uh, it won't happen. I, and we, we need a market. I don't know what the right structure is, but I think if you create a market, then people will play. But are any of your business models dependent on a price oh, on no. carbon? No, 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 no. In the same way that I'm glad that my company is not dependent on government money. That, that was my point earlier. I mean, at the end of the day, we have shareholders. We have to have viable business models that stand on their own two feet, and our business models should be dependent on government government money, loans, uh, breaks on duty. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm glad to say none of, I, none of that's relevant to, to my company's viability. Uh, the future of my company hinges much more on industry adoption, and that's the way it should be. That's the way it was with most industries and most innovations. Ellen Shaw, CEO of Cadexis. Let's have our next audience question, please. Hi there. My name's uh, Mary Solecki, and I work with an organization called E2, Environmental Entrepreneurs. And we've been exploring market-based solutions for the challenges that your companies face towards on the path to commercialization. Uh, we would very much like to see programs like the California Low Carbon Fuel Standard succeed so that we can see this implemented in other regions of the country. Um, one of the best scenarios for the LCFS is to have local production of biofuels. And so I was wondering if you could discuss what it would take for your companies to consider building production facilities within the state, considering that at least two of you already have uh, intellectual and investment headquarters here within California. I think all three of us do. Oh, uh, <laughs> Jonathan Wilson? Uh, I, I, I would say, you know, that, that um, we, we are contemplating – uh, we are contemplating what we can do in the state of California, and a lot of it uh, goes back to answering some of those questions about how we can source um, what I would call highly sustainable and economically viable feedstocks um, for our process. I mean, ultimately, the one thing I'll say is, 
the manufacturing in California is great from a jobs perspective. It's very important. But, you know, we, we've done a lot of hiring in California and we'll continue to do hiring in California. Ultimately, one thing about liquid transportation fuel and the entire reason that it's um, uh, been adopted the way it has is because it's in- incredibly energy dense and relatively easy to transport. And ultimately, from my perspective, our 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 sustainable our biggest sustainability win is sourcing the most sustain the combination of the most sustainable and most economic feedstock and while there are a number of opportunities we're looking at in California they are dwarfed by opportunities that we're looking at elsewhere Jonathan Wilson is CEO of the biofuel company Solazyme let's have our next audience question please uh, my question is i don't have a good sense of what the where you are in the scale-up activities. Could each of you talk about maybe a prime project that you're, uh, uh, that you're, uh, is underway with your company? Sure. We, we, um, we have a, a facility that we own in, uh, in Peoria, Illinois, and another, uh, which is um, a facility that uh, uh, should be, when all is said and done, uh, able to produce something in the vicinity of about a, a million gallons a year, which is really a drop in the bucket. Um, we're in another facility that we don't own um, in, uh, in Pennsylvania, where the capacity is much, much, much higher. Um, but we're, uh, we're basically leasing a portion of that facility today. Um, and we're also developing uh, commercial projects in food, uh, for food oils and related materials, um, uh, with a company called Roquette, which is um, a project that will be uh, in the vicinity of a 50,000-ton range and a, and a larger project that's being developed uh under a joint venture framework agreement right now with Bungie that would be in Brazil. Um, but uh, today we've been producing over the last few years. We've been sh- we've shipped um, uh, particularly the the uh, we've shipped to the Navy uh, some number of hundreds of thousands of gallons of in spec uh, marine diesel and jet fuels. And so that's really the scale. Um, the the ferment the fermentation equipment and the downstream equipment is very large scale equipment. The distinction between that and the tens or hundreds of millions of gallons is um, a plant that you control that's filled with equipment of that size as opposed to having a, a small uh, number of units at that size, which is what we're doing now. But it's very comforting that we can run at that scale. Uh, meaning in that sized equipment, and we've been demonstrating that actually going back to 2007, and that's one of the things that's given a lot of our partners uh, uh, the comfort to partner with us to move forward. Let's hear from Cadexis and LS9. Sure. Uh, I think it's a great Alan question because uh, I think this, uh, all of us really are at a, f- a transition phase. Uh, uh, I know my own company is, 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 is moving very quickly from being a research-focused company to a, to a products company. Uh, because most of our work is focused with major partners like Royal Dutch Shell and now in Brazil, Hyacin, uh, both market leaders in, the, in their fields, uh, we're utilizing their assets. So we haven't had to invest in, in, in any of our own. And, and, and actually, I don't envisage us ever having to do that. Uh, so uh, Royal Dutch Shell have a facility in Canada. 
uh, uh, it's a subsidiary called Iogen Energy. Uh, there's a million-gallon cellulosic ethanol facility there. Our technology has been producing cellulosic ethanol there for about the last eight months. So that's actually scaling up very nicely. Is it actually producing a million gallons, or it could produce a million gallons? No, it gallons? could. That's its nameplate capacity. Uh, pilot plants never produce much of anything, is the truth. They're, they're really like large-scale kit. Uh, and if anyone ever produces a commercial product in a pilot plant and they say they're making money, don't believe them. Because that's not what it was built for. <laughs> they're really to prove processes and give the chemical engineers the data they need to then go and build the big plant. Uh, in, with Hyacin in Brazil, we'll have access to substantial capacity. They're the largest uh, sugar producer and ethanol producer. They have a very nice modern pilot plant at a site called Bonfin. And we expect to have cellulosic technology in Brazil as early as next year, and we'd like to see a development uh, production capability of our uh, detergent alcohol uh, surfactant opportunity, which uses the same cellulosic, but the target there is uh, consumer goods companies, and it's a higher added value product. I'd be very disappointed if that's not been taken to the next level uh, in Brazil uh, next year. Hey, Denine? Yeah, we're, uh, as we speak... Uh bringing on a facility in Okeechobee, Florida, that the initial phase will start up just at the end of or probably early next year, and that will be at the roughly hundreds of thousands of gallons a year capacity. And then the site has four large fermentation vessels that in a phase two uh, we would bring on that uh, would put us at uh, roughly 10 million gallons a year. So we'll be running diesel fuel there, uh, as well as materials for uh, Procter & Gamble at that site. We have, to, we have to end it there. We're out of time. I'd like to thank our guests today, Ed Deneen, CEO of LS9, Alan Shaw, CEO of Cadexis, and Jonathan Wolfson, CEO of Solzheim, all biofuel companies. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming today, and thanks to our audience here at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all.